This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. When most of us think about the history of Reformed theology, if we think about it at all, we tend to think first of Calvin, and then we typically jump maybe to Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century, then perhaps Princeton in the 19th century, and then to our own time. But a lot happened between Calvin and Princeton. Outside of Edwards and Whitfield, the story of what happened to Reformed theology, piety, and practice in the 18th century is a lost story for many of us. After all, when we think of Geneva today, we think perhaps of the Red Cross and the United Nations. We might think of Rousseau or Voltaire, and then working back perhaps to Calvin. But how do all those phases of Geneva's life story fit together? Dr. Jennifer Powell McNutt is Associate Professor of Theology and the History of Christianity at Wheaton College, where she's taught since 2008. She earned her Ph.D. at the University of St. Andrews in Reformation Studies, and she's the author of Calvin Meets Voltaire, the Clergy of Geneva during the Age of Enlightenment, 1685 to 1798. She's on campus this week to talk to our students about what happened to the Reformed faith and practice in Geneva in the 18th century. Hi, Jennifer. Hi. And welcome to Office Hours. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you so much for being here this week. I know the students are encouraged, and I could hear the laughter in the auditorium this morning. So. Oh, I'm so glad. How did you come to be interested in what is, for many people, a sort of lost period of history, particularly in Geneva? Right. Great question. I was studying at Princeton Theological Seminary and decided to do an independent study on the Enlightenment. And as I was reading and working with Jamie Deming there, I discovered that Voltaire moved to Geneva which intrigued me. And so I proceeded to look into as much as I could what was out there about that time and found very little. And that's really how it began was with questions surrounding Voltaire's arrival in the city, his impact. But then it grew to be more than that. Who were the Genevan clergy of the 18th century? Were they still living in the legacy of Calvin and the Protestant Reformation? How were they grappling with the complexity of their period? as they were facing social and political unrest and now the philosophers of France coming to their city. The 18th century is the consequence in many ways of the 16th and 17th centuries. What are some of the major developments that help shape 18th century Genevan religious life? Well, probably the first one, and this is where my book starts, is the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685 really sets Geneva on a similar trajectory that it had had in the 16th century as refugees are coming into the city and they're trying to minister to them, trying to understand how to be good pastors, and also recognizing the political threat, the very real political threat of Louis XIV and his maneuvers at that time. Explain two things, just in case the listener has forgotten his high school history. What was the edict? And what did the revocation entail? Sure. The Edict of Nantes had been established in 1598 by Henry IV, uh, the King of France, and it was basically intended to permit Protestants to worship in particular contexts and under particular constraints. So it wasn't just a total freedom. In fact, there's more complexity to it because in the 17th century, you see that the kings of France start to take away some of those freedoms of worship gradually. And by the time Louis XIV revoked that edict completely. It's just the last straw. And Geneva 
No, it's in Switzerland, and it's an independent city-state. It's a canton. Geographically, it's like a thumb, right, that sort of sticks <laughs> yeah. up into France. And so it's surrounded it by France. Yeah. But whatever happens in France has a huge influence mm-hmm. on whatever happens in Geneva, right? Yes, it really does have kind of an embattled identity in many ways. And one of the effects of these events upon Geneva is that it reinforces Protestant identity and this idea that, you know, being a Republican, a Genevan Republican is also to be a Genevan Protestant, that those two things go together. And consequently, you also see sort of a revival of anti-Catholicism as well that persists throughout the century, in part as a way to protect the city from its, you know, from invaders. The revocation also changed the way that Genevan Protestants were now going to relate to Roman Catholics. As we think about Geneva, particularly after 1536, we don't think of it as a place where Roman Catholics are a welcome or where one would expect to find a, a Roman service, a, a mass. And yet that became an issue for the Genevan Protestants, the mm-hmm. Reformed, in the 18th century. So help us understand sure. that story. Well, um, France actually appoints the a resident, the resident of France at the end of the 17th century in Geneva. And that resident has the freedom to have his own chapel and mass. So that's actually the first time that the Catholic service is happening again in Geneva since Calvin, so the end of the 17th century. And so, you know, of course, the Genevans protest it by singing psalms, <laughs> as they are meant to do, right? Yeah, exactly. In, in the vein, in the tradition of Theodore Beza. So, so that kind of dynamic continues. And, you know, there's lots of restrictions that are put on Roman Catholics who come into the city, um, those who work in the city, but then don't live within the city. They have restrictions about what they can do. All of that, though, is going to change when France's armies take over Geneva and force Geneva to introduce a Roman Catholic's permanent church within its... You argue in the book that what happened in Geneva in the 18th century was less a decline from orthodoxy. We'll come back to that. And more an adaptation to a new situation, to pluralism. Explain the different ways that people look at Geneva in the 18th century. Well, I would say that they are not having to deal with pluralism quite yet. So they've sort of had this time where they've been, unlike pretty much, I don't know, can you think of another context (laughs) that experienced the Reformation the way that Geneva did? Yeah. Pretty extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, lots of, you know, in lots of places, the magistrate decrees Reformation, which is more or less what happens in Geneva. I mean, you've got a a leading figure, Farrell, who persuades the Petit Council to enforce Protestantism, which is not completely different from what happens elsewhere. Yeah. Well, I guess the way I see it is that in other contexts, they're still dealing with usually a pretty significant population that is nonconformist in some way, either Protestant or Catholic. And in Geneva, that story is just not really the case as much. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. In the 18th century, the Genevan church is faced with challenges and complexities that it didn't face even at the end of the 16th and through much of the 17th century. And so your argument seems to be that a lot of what they did, it's better for us to interpret it rather than as a decline, as an adaptation 
to new circumstances. Is mm-hmm. that a fair summary? Yeah, I think I definitely don't talk about it as decline. And I'm, of course, measuring that according to Christian Orthodoxy, lowercase. And I'm even asking the question because they were asking the question at the time. So it's a question that fits. They are introducing and engaging with new questions, new concerns. There is this sort of political component there, this desire to build alliances with other Protestants and consequently to lessen some of the most divisive issues from the past. So we see a movement away from reform scholasticism and the divisions that had erupted from the formula consensus, for example, with its abrogation. But at the same time, you also see persistence in affirmations of the fullness of the divinity of Christ. I mean, it's as basic as that in some ways, because that was the criticism, (laughs) you know, looking for uh, affirmations of the Trinity, which I think you do see there, though they don't use the term, looking for discussions of sin. That's another important one. How do they talk about sin? I really see that they are consistent with the Calvinist understanding of sin and even using particular scriptural passages in the exact same way that Calvin had used them. So that was interesting to discover. But then at the same time, you know, everyone's talking about reason in the Enlightenment. And so they're talking about reason and they're emphasizing reason and the reasonableness of God and of Protestant worship and of scripture and all of these things are reasonable. But they don't talk about it in such a way as to the detriment of an affirmation of revelation or of the place of scriptures, you know, in terms of it being that which the Holy Spirit works through to give us conviction and understanding. And so in those ways, I think you see a wonderful coupling of the Enlightenment context and concerns, but with sort of persisting affirmations. In your book, you take us through some of the newer scholarship on the Enlightenment. And so we know now that we want to talk more about Enlightenments and the various local contexts for the Enlightenment, which is sort of the drift of scholarship generally in historical studies in the last, say, 30 years. There's a stronger emphasis Mm -hmm. on what, from a philosophical point of view, we might call the many Mm -hmm. rather than the one looking for one grand unifying story in a sense. So how does that change the way we think of the Enlightenment when we think of it as a diverse movement with variety across Europe and the British Isles? Yeah, I think it's a huge paradigm shift and really important to keep in mind. I do see some similarities with what's happened in Reformation studies, even just recognizing that different contexts have particular ways of developing and that sometimes defies the generalizations and stereotypes. So, for example, um, I think Jonathan Israel's work is really crucial in helping us to preserve an understanding of the Enlightenment as a category. So there is something that is the Enlightenment, but then at the same time to recognize that different people responding in different ways to these common questions that are emerging. Um, So it was exciting, for example, to read David Sorkin's work, The Religious Enlightenment. His book and my dissertation finished the same year, so I hadn't read his book at all. And his evaluation of Geneva was just exactly my valuation with of Geneva too. He just did one chapter on Jacob Vernet. And of course I did the whole company of pastors, but 
I was really struck by the similarities of what we saw there. And he used the category of the religious enlightenment in order to explain this affirmation, for example, of the compatibility between faith and reason to affirm that church and state are, in fact, working together still in the 18th century. A lot of the points there defy secularization theory. That explain what that is. Classic secularization theory assumes an inevitable decline of religion with the rise of modernity. And the rise of modernity has often been identified with the 18th century, though you do see some questions about that with whether that's the Reformation, really. <laughs> so that that's another topic. And you know, what comes of secularization is, you know, different words are used to convey it, a privatization, for example. So this alienation of different spheres, and usually, therefore, the church sphere um, recedes into the background and is not as involved in the public sphere, even. And religion becomes a chiefly private matter yeah. where Christians are no longer making public claims about what really was in history, but it becomes increasingly something that one experiences privately, which is the way that religion is often talked about today, right? You, you hear people yeah. say, well, you're entitled to believe anything you want, but we don't want to hear about it in public life. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So it's fascinating to discover that, you know, Geneva's clergy, they're not being pushed out of the social functioning of the city. They're not being pu pushed out of the political functioning of the city. They're that they're being valued and included and they have an, a special role. It's critical to get the gospel right because it is the good news of the work of Jesus Christ that is saving. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, we need the whole Bible. We need the whole message of the Bible. We need the help of the law. We need the crushing work of the law. We must never undervalue or underestimate the importance of the law. But it is what Christ did that is saving. And what by trusting in what Christ did, uh, we are saved. It is by receiving the gospel in faith that we're justified. And all the other benefits and fruits of Christ's work flow out of that. Westminster Seminary. Seminary, California, WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474, Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. One of the uh, claims that you make in the book that is, I think, most interesting is that the story that we tell ourselves that there was a Reformation, there was a period of orthodoxy, and then at the end of the 17th century, in, you know, transitioning into the 18th century, we entered into a period of decline, and typically we look at people like Francis Turretin as sort of a high point of orthodoxy, followed by his son, Jean Alphonse, who is at least a transitional figure and maybe marks a decline into a kind of soft rationalism, who is then succeeded by Jacob Vernet, who is thought to be and said to be frequently an out-and-out out rationalist. So Geneva in this narrative goes from being sort of the Protestant Rome to, in one account, a Protestant Paris, mm -hmm, right? Yeah. And you're objecting to that narrative, mm -hmm. saying that we have internalized a story that we didn't tell, but in fact that story comes from somewhere else. So yeah. tell us about that. Yeah, the idea that Geneva's theology was moving towards unorthodoxy was 
really famously uh, expressed by Jean D'Alembert as well as by Voltaire. Um, and it emerges with the article written for the Encyclopédie Genève. <laughs> and there the clergy are said to be moving, embracing a perfect Socinianism um, is the phrase that's used. And there are several other things that are said as well about the clergy. And so this idea of them moving away from their roots, from Calvin, there's a lot of discussion about Calvin and the Calvinist tradition is something that's advanced at that point that the clergy are very upset by this rendition of their story. They oppose it in numerous ways in an effort to not only protect the memory of Calvin and the Reformed church history, but also in the Reformation, but also to sort of protect their role as leaders. They weren't just called the mother church. They actually functioned as a mother church for churches in, in all kinds of contexts. And what's interesting to me, something that in the book, The Identity of Geneva picks up on in the 19th century is that after Geneva becomes annexed to France and then eventually joins the Swiss Confederation and its Roman Catholic population outnumbers its Protestant population, that there's then the story is told about the 18th century clergy that they have moved away from Orthodox thought, that they've moved away from Calvinist thought, and so that that is sort of perpetuated. And, you know, what I've discovered is just that really the primary source work has not been done to warrant that conclusion. So I would point to David Sorkin, for example, who studies the theological treatises of Jacob Vernet and challenges it. And I study the sermons, and I would challenge that as well. So it's it's really a brand new story in that way, which is very exciting. Would you agree that the at least the rhetoric of the Reformed in the late 17th and early 18th century begins to shift so that, for example, I'm thinking about Benedict Pictet, mm. where there's a lot more discussion of reason and also in, say, Herman Venema, mm. um, where in the, uh, say, early 17th century, the discussion of reason typically tends to focus around the question of, well, yes, we use it, but it has a very limited function uh, in response to Lutheran criticisms and, and other criticisms that the Reformed were implicitly rationalist. By the end of the 17th and into the 18th century, the Reformed are having to say to the Enlightenment, no, we do make use of reason. We're not irrational. Right. So how do you account for that and the suggestion that the shift was more than rhetorical, that it was, uh, there was a real substantial shift mm -hmm. in the 18th century towards rationalism. And typically the story looks at people like Vernet as examples of the influence of reason and the move away from the primacy of revelation and scripture to uh, a you know, primacy of reason. Yeah, there is absolutely an emphasis in the rhetoric, for sure, on reason. Everything is reasonable <laughs> for the Genevan clergy. And I think the problem has been um, distinguishing between what they mean by reasonable and what they mean by rational. And looking at the affirmations of the compatibility between reason and faith and affirming that 
you know, reason is a God-given gift. Okay, so that's the foundation. But they also affirm that reason can be distorted, that it can be misguided. And the sermons talk about the Holy Spirit as having the role in sort of re-establishing that right reason as one engages with Scripture, for example. So to me, and I don't really talk about this in my book, but I wonder now if there's kind of a sanctified reason that's emerging in a more distinct way in Geneva's 18th century clergy. But the clergy that I look at, including Vernet, never say that, first of all, that that reason is sufficient. So always revelation is necessary. But secondly, that that reason is the measure by which the truth of religion is known. So there's still room for mystery because, of course, God's reason is greater than human reason. And that's explicitly stated in the documents that I looked at by multiple individuals. So consequently, I would say it is not rationalization because it's not defining truth, you know, totally, but that it is an affirmation of, for lack of a better word, reasonableness. (laughs) You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. You argue that we give too much attention to Vernet, perhaps, that you Hmm. you want to push him a little bit more to the margins and not use him to define 18th century Genevan clergy. But you also suggest that at least it's possible that he was moving in an Arminianizing direction, which would suggest a sort of a creeping rationalism. I mean, the, the history of the remonstrance in the Netherlands was not promising, right? There was a pretty rapid movement from the first generation to the second, and very quickly from Episcopius right into anti-Trinitarian mm. rationalism. I don't want to marginalize Jacob Vernet, so I'll just say that first. I just think that no one person speaks for the whole company of pastors. And so that was my goal, was to understand the clergy as a group. Vernet as an important part of that group, and certainly a very significant leader, but not the only voice in that group. So that was my first intention. I was looking for predestination election discussion within the sermons, and I did find some indications of an ongoing affirmation. That was in light of the abrogation of the formula consensus. I was wondering about that. talk about that for just a minute, in case the listener isn't familiar. 1675, in response to the Remonstrants, the Arminians, and the Amaraldians, among others, and the Socinians, the two theologians drafted chiefly J.H. Heidegger, but perhaps more famously Francis Turretin, drafted and published and a document called the Formula of Helvetic Consensus, which is the formula of Swiss agreement, which represented a, a sort of theological union between uh, Zurich in the north and Geneva farther south and the German-speaking Reformed and the French-speaking Reformed, which held in the Swiss cantons and perhaps elsewhere until the early 18th century when it was abrogated. Is that close to right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I was uh, referring to, absolutely. And so how in the 18th century did Turretin's son and Vernet and the others come to regard this formula of Swiss agreement? Yeah, they really saw it as too divisive. Um, and why so? What is it about the formula that made it, in their view, divisive? Well, I think it was just the minutia of details about how grace works. And there were, frankly, people in the clergy that 
disagreed with it. And so it was just practically divisive regardless of theological views. So it's pretty significant when Francis dies and um, Louis Tranchon, who was opposed to it because he believed that it was moving the tradition away from Calvin, he really takes over as the mentor of Jean-Alphonse Tarantini and this new generation emerges. And that's usually the story. I would like to include, though, the implications of the revocation of the Edict of Nantes on there, the political side of things as well, to say that Geneva is really, as you were saying before, surrounded by Catholicism, is very vulnerable during this time period. And it simply cannot afford to have these kinds of theological disputes. And they're talking with others, Protestant princes and Lutherans, and the right? Roman Empire. Yep. Lutherans actually begin uh, emigrating to Geneva, mm-hmm. and they're asking for freedom to establish congregations and to fund a minister. Mm-hmm. And so the Reformed are having to figure out, well, what do we do with that? And as they're you... excited about that. Jean-Alphonse Trentini is so excited about this opportunity to mend the divisions of Protestantism from the past. And he actually begins the century with a sermon where he encourages those healings to happen. I was looking in the sermons for ways in which there are exceptions to the group theologically, and there may be some leanings in Jacob Vernet towards Arminianism, but sometimes it's hard with preaching to have a sense of the system that is at work. Um, And in fact, I did discover some ambiguity, one passage that seemed like yes, and then another that seemed not quite. So well, that's the nature of Arminianism, right? <laughs> if, it, if Arminianism was completely clear, then we wouldn't have had a synod of Dort right, to figure it out. So before the formula consensus is abrogated, which doesn't happen until 1725, I think that's really the motivation that's occurring, broadly speaking. There's so much conversation with England as well, and there's a political side to it that's important to recognize. So there are external factors, mm-hmm. political factors, social, economic, a variety of things that are pushing Geneva to reconsider. Oh, and I'll say one more thing. The first article I ever wrote was actually about Geneva rejecting the Gregorian calendar in the 16th century and then embracing a new calendar. They don't want to call it the Gregorian calendar, but a new calendar um, for the start of the 18th century. And that's another example of how they're trying to align themselves better with those who share their broad Protestant convictions as well as can be political allies. Marty Clauber, who's a, a friend and a sometime collaborator of mine, he contributed to a volume that I co-edited a few years ago, actually many years ago now, argues uh, in that volume, Protestant Scholasticism, Essays and Reassessment, that if you read Vernet's theological writing, that he sees a, a pretty strong shift in Vernet away from Reformed Orthodoxy towards a kind of moralism, toward a kind of... Uh, public moral emphasis on public morality and order that isn't very challenging to deism, that's sort of compatible to deism. And he calls him a rationalist, Mm. but that's not, you don't see that for nay. I definitely engaged with Marty's work and appreciated so much of it. I mean, he really opened the field up for sure for this kind of study. He's the first guy really really in in the English speaking world to really dive into the 18th century. So, I mean, I wouldn't know anything starting out if it weren't for his, his stuff. Um, He and I studied different things, though. I I did not study the theological treatises. I studied the sermons. I don't interpret the emphasis on morality as that 
how I saw it functioning in the sermons was in an apologetic way to show that the Genevan clergy understood the significance of morality, which was a question, you know, morals was a, a, a larger question within the Enlightenment at that time. And when you're in a city with Voltaire and, Rousse- <laughs> yes. and, and Rousseau, right? Mo- yeah. Morality is a serious question. On what basis do we make moral decisions? Right, yeah. But the way that they talk about morality, I don't think differs from just an emphasis within Calvinism on sanctification. Just the way that, again, there's an affirmation of the work of the Holy Spirit and transforming you. They use the word moral, but sometimes they use sanctified too. And I think they're really interchangeable, actually. So we've been in the weeds here in 18th century Geneva, but as part of your talk today uh, with the students, you gave them some encouragement. You gave them nine encouraging sort of mini stories from church history that would be an encouragement to pastors. Yeah. Run through some of those with us just to encourage the listener as we bring this to an end. Yeah, I really was pleased to have the opportunity to address those who are pursuing the pastorate. That was really fun for me. And so I compiled this list of nine things to remember from Reformed Church history when you've had a bad day in ministry. And one of them, for example, I say when you've had a bad day in ministry, because after months of interviews and after delivering your candidacy sermon, the congregation decided not to call you to the church. Remember David Cropé. In 1644, Cropé was nominated by the company of pastors to the country church of Juicy, but his nomination was rejected by the congregation. It appears that this incident's the only time in 300 years of Genevan church history that this has happened. So be glad you're not known in history for that. The one guy to get turned down in Geneva. <laughs> well, we'll have to see if that that's true, but so far. Um, yeah, I mean, there are other examples of just, you know... There was one fellow who was making some money on the side. Oh, yes, Pierre Clement. When you've had a bad day in ministry because you're having trouble with someone on your staff, just be glad you didn't have to work with Pierre Clement. Clement was living on the meager wages of a missions pastor in France and began to write comedies for the Parisian theater in order to supplement his income. Because the company was outspoken regarding the moral corruption of the theater, Clement was instructed in several correspondences to stop his activity, which was considered unworthy of his position as a Genevan minister. Clement relented and informed the company he would stop, but soon after, the company discovered that Clement had in fact gone ahead and published a comedy. He was stripped of his ordination. (laughs) (laughs) And then finally, uh, if you've had a bad day, just remember that you're not the guy who decided to go to the parade. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, one of the Genevan clergymen had attended a parade in, in a dragon costume. <laughs> and uh, the company of pastors was not too happy about that at all. Um, so he was reprimanded uh, for behavior unbefitting of a Genevan clergyman. <laughs> so in case you're tempted to go to that local parade. I think my point really is just that, you know, clergy have been dealing with some of these same struggles for centuries. And I think that the past can be an encouragement to us today. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.